Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the U.S. Naval Institute. With me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Hamlet, who's the Deputy Editor-in-Chief for Proceedings Magazine. Bill, how are you this hey, week? Hey, Ward. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so normally we do a little bit of uh, back and forth and talk about Navy news, what's going on in the sea services, but we have a special guest today. Uh, our guest this afternoon is Admiral Scott Swift, the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. He's joining us from Pack Fleet headquarters in Pearl Harbor, and he has an article in the February issue of Proceedings, which will be online tomorrow and probably already in people's mailboxes. It is titled, Master the Art of Command and Control. Admiral Swift, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Uh, very good to be with you, and thanks for the opportunity to share some thoughts and insights. Uh, sir, this article builds off of a 2002 Proceedings article by Admiral Bob Willard, uh, Rat Willard, who also commanded the 7th Fleet and the Pacific Fleet. His article was called Rediscover the Art of Command and Control, and his thesis was that the Navy had lost the sight, lost sight of the art of C2 as it chased technology in the early 2000s. Uh, in other words, the four ISR had kind of killed C2. And you take up that argument and advance it. We're wondering what you've learned about C2, command and control, the art of it, uh, from being a strike group commander, the seven fleet commander, and now the Pacific fleet commander. Yeah, so um, I'm glad to glad that we have four or five hours here to, to cover that first, uh, that first We have question. as long as you want, sir. It's a podcast. It's free form. The, uh, so uh, the, my, my first response is to, is to provide uh, some context. And uh, going back to uh, Admiral Willard's article, in that article as well, he spoke about his experiences as a strike group commander and felt that uh, the system, you know, the Navy, the, the education system uh, within the Navy had not fully prepared him uh, to, to uh, command at the, at the strike group level, that there was an uh, awful lot of learning that occurred of his own volition, and, and he felt that it was important. Uh, the premise of the article, uh, well, I shouldn't say the premise of the article, but the premise of his broad thinking uh, was he took it on as a, as a challenge to uh, develop the, the structures, the framework uh, within the Navy to provide that, that education. So it wasn't just about lamenting that we have a problem. He took it uh, on himself uh, to develop uh, structures within the Navy to get after that problem. Uh, and I, I think I was, the, I was the benefit of that. I wasn't that far behind him in, in strike group command. Um, but I felt that, that I, was, I was well prepared uh, for commanding a strike group. Now, some of that may have been my own path of discovery. So I, I was I was fortunate as a strike group commander. Uh, the CNO, uh, Roughhead at the time, uh, was uh, uh, reinstilling the Global uh, War Game series. So I, I when I heard that, that Global 9, the, the 2009 War Game, was, was uh, going to be the first one, uh, I, I went right away to uh, the third fleet commander, Emma Hunt, uh, advocating strongly that I should be the one that uh, uh, that, that was the, the commander, the, the JTF commander for that for that war game, because I really looked at it as a uh, as a learning experience. And what I didn't realize at the time, I was in a rush because I wanted to try to force my way to the front of the line. What I didn't realize was there wasn't any line, and uh, I was really the only only guy that was advocating to play in, in the in the war game. Um, that wasn't that surprising to me 
but I, it didn't uh, resonate with me for you know probably another two or three years until I was the the Seventh Fleet Commander. So that was a great learning experience. And I was I think it was a good learning experience for the Navy. There's still people talk about the lessons applied uh, from that game. Yes, sir. That, it, it that's really, where that's where you and I met. That's right. And and if you're I I think that. Uh, I'm guessing I don't. I haven't talked to Admiral Willard about this, but I think that's how I ended up as his J3 up at PACOM, uh, because I I remember well uh, a debrief that was provided to him. He he was the owner of of Global Nine. There were C2 concepts that he was testing that had direct applicability uh, to his uh, vision for war fight in the Pacific, and I got into a uh, you know a, a constructive critique back and forth with another flag officer that was more senior to me that was espousing uh, the bringing together of the the uh, uh, strike warfare commander and uh, the surface warfare commander under one command. And, and my point was that they should stay separate because you needed, and the reason, the advocacy for bringing them together was to reduce friction within the command chain. And I was arguing the reason you needed to keep them separate was to ensure there was friction, because there's never going to be enough resources to cover down on all the tasking. We had that discussion in front of uh, Admiral Willard, and he was largely silent. But I was very surprised shortly after that uh, to find out that my tour at the strike group was being cut short uh, because Admiral Willard had asked me to come to be his J3. So I, I have had an unfair advantage across the Navy with experiences like that. I then I didn't know Admiral Willard. And here I was as his J3, I got to sit at his knee as we went through very consequential exercises. We went through the Tomodachi experience where there was no playbook, consequential government discussions between the government of Japan and the United States about how to manage our way forward, and the decision about standing up a four-star JTF and having that JTF move its headquarters uh, to Japan. Just a rich experience, and I took those experiences with me. Uh, kind of got short turned into the uh, uh, the job at at Seventh Fleet. Overlapped a little bit uh, with Admiral Willard, and then he and I have have uh, uh, maintained a relationship since. So I, as I I the, the global games have expanded exponentially. I, I, I just did uh, Global Eight uh, a couple of months ago, and largest war game that the Naval War College has done in, in anyone's uh, corporate memory. So I use that as an example that, that if Admiral Willard were, were here, I would tell him he should uh, feel very good about his initiative and the momentum that it, it still carries moving forward. Having said that, there, there, it is the art of warfare is, is such a broad concept. Uh, in 2009, the summary of the learning experience was uh, what I said is we need to expose our O5, uh, O5's commanders to the operational level of war. We need to train our O6s to it, and we need to test our uh, O7s to uh, the operational level of war. I, I don't know if you guys want to get into it, but that's the premise behind the fleet problem. So we've done a great job with our operational level training, and I, I would say a strike group commander operates at the high tactical, low operational. The commander needs to bridge to the operational level, although his actions are, are tactical in execution. The fleet problem allows us free play, where we have blue free play and red free play 
that forces that strike group commander out of the science of war fighting into the art of war fighting. That's the nirvana, I think, that Admiral Willard was looking for. So we've built that at Pack Fleet. Um, a, a bit of an advertisement here, uh, ho- hopefully for uh, uh, the great work that USNI does and Proceedings does. I- I've submitted two more articles uh, for consideration to the editorial board. One speaks to the fleet problem. And then the third article is, is a kind of a wrap-up summary of this mastering the art of command how the fleet problem is a bridge to that, and then how do you fight a fleet at the operational level? So um, that, that all generated from Admiral Willard's vision back in 2002 and kind of us coming together intellectually. Uh, obviously, we separated uh, with his retirement, although we stayed in contact. I'm obviously looking at retirement in the near term, and that, that's what has motivated me to, well, motivated me to do the SWIFT signals at the, the, the classified uh, level to generate the SWIFT signal series of messages to generate um, the operational design uh, the, in the Pacific for uh, um, operation for uh, full spectrum superiority, uh, and then now the uh, the fighting instructions. So it's really Willard, Admiral Willard had this down. He always said it's very important to write. It forces you to think. And it, it opens your ideas for criticisms and critique, which is why I'm so grateful for uh, uh, proceedings uh, agreeing to uh, publish this first article. Well, thank you for that thought, Admiral. That's uh, that's right on with our uh, our mission statement, as you know. Um, early in the article, you you actually quote Admiral Willard, um, Tomcat guy, so he's got to be a good guy, right? Um, and. Uh, so you quote him saying, we, in the, and it summarizes the thesis here, uh, which is putting a finer point of some of what you've already said. We in the U.S. military made a mistake when we combined command and control with communications and computers to yield the C4 acronym. Following that initiative, the acquisition of and training on C2 tools, computers, radios, and software, became confused with the requirement for continuous training in the operational art of and methods for effective control of forces. And then later you... Uh, shorten that thought to basically what is the thesis of this piece, which is science must be used in the service of art, not the other way around. So uh, that resonates with uh, with me because, you know, often we, we would get a new thing and, and it would sort of drive somewhat artificially ops in a way that maybe wasn't the, the, the core spirit of, of how you would otherwise fight. You know, now there is a requirements process, right? I mean, Everything is is procured under a quote unquote requirement, but we know that sometimes, as you sagely state here, um, that that gets perturbated by just the G whiz factor. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so so let me start off uh, with that thought of commending the great work that uh, Colonel Work did as a Marine. Uh, the great work that he did as Undersecretary of the Navy and and the phenomenal work that he did as uh, DepSecDef, specifically to to your uh, your comment with the third offset strategy and the pursuit of technology. I, I, I don't diminish that at all. I, I think that's critically important. But I absolutely agree with, with Admiral Willard's thesis, and I think it's been proven um, since he, he uh, wrote those words, is that there is a separation between the action of uh, command and control and the systems that that we exercise that command and control through. 
Um, technology is a huge contributor. I mean, we are so much further along with, uh, I mean, look at where we're going with artificial intelligence. Really interesting series of articles that was uh, uh, published re- recently in The Economist about melding artificial intelligence with actual intelligence. I mean, within the brain. I mean, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal where technology is, uh, is going, and we need to embrace that. But uh, I, I, we, we, have a, uh, we have a conference that, that we do here yearly. We call it the Sea of Dreams. And at the genesis of the, the C, and so we have industry come in. We do it at the secret level, and we brief industry on the challenges that we face in the Pacific. And and that's the whole. That's what that's my objective out of the whole thing. And the reason that that's important is because I I was struck uh, as the Pack Fleet Commander of the the number of of times that industry uh, darkened my doorstep with a widget. And they would they would come in with a widget and they say this is going to rock your world, and my response my first response to them was tell me about my world, and the conversation ended, and that's my <laughs> failure, that's my failure not their failure. So because right we for understandable reasons we have these this firewall between industry and and the military. You know, I've got to have a lawyer in the room when I'm talking to industry. I can't give one company an unfair advantage over another. So uh, I went to the lawyers. I said, how can we fix this? And, and the solution was get them all in the room at the same time. You know, we had over 250 uh, companies represented at, at this classified briefing where we described the, the challenges that we face in the Pacific. And the, the outcome of that is industry has has bringing me technology to say this widget is going to fill this challenge that you're facing in the theater. It is a, a, a rich, rich discussion. And invariably, when I have those discussions now with industry, they, they, they're not telling me about widgets. They're, they're coming and asking me for clarification of the challenges that we face so they can go back and continue to mature the right technology lines that will actually uh, help us in what we're doing. So that's that's one that's the second point on uh, on Admiral Willard's point. The other point is we need to assess our blue systems against red vulnerabilities. So we've we've got the PNAT here, and you know Dale Relag. I would argue there's there's no one that that understands the threats that we face here in the Pacific better than Na- uh, Dale, um, uh, uh, unless it's. Uh, um, you know the, the others on on his staff that are uh, uh, equally uh, equally talented, um, and and that comes down to the C two piece is that you know we think that we are going to uh, fight in this 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 connected and incredibly technology enabled system of of links and data sharing. This was this was Willard's Admiral Willard's premise, and that's what my greatest concern is. We need to make sure that we understand how to operate those systems, but we also need to understand how do we operate if those systems are uh, interdicted. And the ultimate point is getting down to mission command, and this is spreading across the the the, uh, the services. You know, I, I'm struck by the number of of leaders and other services that have come to me and commented on the SWIFT signals. You know, we've got just an incredible, the best personal relationship that I've ever seen in the eight years that I've been, you know, commanding here in the, in the Pacific sequentially um, amongst the uh, component commanders at, at PACOM. 
And I've got uh, a general. I, I went and gave it, General Shaughnessy and I gave a brief at the Navy uh, Air Force uh, staff talks. We gave a, a brief together talking about the challenges in the Pacific and how we were getting after those challenges together. Uh, general uh, O'Shaughnessy is asking questions about how do we uh, employ, deploy, and employ the air forces in the Pacific in a comms denied environment. So that's why I don't like the term A2AD. It gives up battle space. It's, it's as if that, that we're, being, we're being excluded from that space. We're not, not, not collectively and not holistically. Um, it's all about it's all about mission command. That's what the enabler is of those units when they're disconnected uh, electronically from uh, using the, the links and com pieces that we have. It's getting back to that the root necessity of having a deep understanding of mission command and how do we transmit commander's intent and how a force fights on commander's intent that may be five, six, seven days old. So I, 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 I'm a big believer in technology, um, but the technology needs to be applied, uh, needs, needs to be considered in its application to the strategy that's been uh, developed for that theater. Admiral, you, uh, you mentioned there that you know, you've sent two more articles to, to us. Uh, one of them, the second article about fleet battle problems, is out to our editorial board right now. Um, and, and in you know just a minute ago, you mentioned the fleet battle problems, and you also mentioned mission command and commander's intent. Um, when you've done fleet problems, are they uh, more than just one CSG involved? Do you have multiple CSGs, and and how has commander's intent uh, played in um, in those pl- problems in a denied environment? So um, uh, so far, uh, for the fleet problems that that. Uh we have uh, we've executed. I think we've done six of them now. Um, so we picked up the numbering. It's important to history is important to me uh, because you should be informed by history. Uh, we shouldn't expect that history will repeat itself, but we should avail ourselves uh, of of the lessons of those that have gone before us, and those lessons are are written in uh, in their history, and their history becomes our heritage. I think this, I'm a little off track here, but it's a point that comes up, so I'll make it. I think too oftentimes we we talk about the importance of heritage without understanding that heritage is a bridge between the past and the future. You know, heritage is is made up of the history of those that have served uh, before us. So the fleet problems, the last fleet problem was fleet problem 21, uh, was done just prior to uh, the beginning of, of World War II. And it was a series of problems that were given to the fleet. And it was at a time that uh, you couldn't get ships to sea. There's a great picture that, that uh, Dale Relag has, has uh, pulled from the archives uh, that shows the fleet commander uh, up at the Naval War College you know, doing a, a, a fleet problem on a on a uh, maneuvering space with models uh, up there on the game floor at the uh, at the war college, what came out of those fleet problems was Nimitz's initial response to the attack on Pearl Harbor. He didn't start from a cold start. He he was an active participant in the fleet problems. Part of the fleet problems came out uh, um, tactical actions that were taken. So he and, and I'm ashamed in front of. You guys, you, you probably know the history, but Nimitz uh, initiated 
some of the first uh, replenishment at sea actions, refueling at sea to extend the reach of uh, destroyers supporting convoys going from the East Coast uh, uh, to Europe. That when he was a lieutenant sh- commander in World War One, and who was who was his lieutenant? That uh, was I, I think, or maybe Army he was the lieutenant, and lieutenant commander was the was the ship CEO. I think he was the XO of a, of, a, of a ship that did that. Yeah, he, he was young. He right, he was a lieutenant commander. But it's somewhere. I may have this wrong. Uh, 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 don't let your your listeners run off with this. But I, I think Arlie Burke was tied in there somehow. Isn't it interesting that those innovators then that were taking risk. Were the were the ones that rose the cream that rose to the cop the the the, the top uh, once once we you know got rid of you know the the bureaucrats and you know the other flags that were were critical in managing the downsizing of the navy in the 30s but there was a recognition that gaming needed to occur and and that was the genesis of the fleet problem and that became from uh, Nimitz relied on that experience uh, for the initial. Uh, operational actions that he took, empowering the submarine fleet um, early in the in the war fight. So it's what we have done is there are a series of things that we've done consoles at sea between commercial ships and gray holes, MSC ships, uh, because we discovered. I don't want to go into a lot of detail about what we discover in the fleet problem, but but there is the fleet problem isn't just that problem. Out of that spins a number of interesting areas for us to explore tactically because there's indications they could be enabler for success in a major war fight. Let's go find out on a smaller scale, and it's not costing us anything. We have not scaled this up to multi-carrier operations yet because we are learning so much just from the, the, the single uh, transits. After a, a carrier and an ESG is, is certified, uh, that's when we, we present them a, a fleet problem. Now, what's interesting in this uh, bill is uh, when we give them the guidance, they have a mission that they have to go execute. They're, they're told this is the red intel, the red force that is going to oppose you, and success is mission execution. They've got to reach, they've got to execute that mission at that geographic point in time to, to a level of, of success, and, and I don't want to go into detail about what those missions are. But and, and sir, do they do these do they do these exercises uh, during the transit as they're as they're moving across the Pacific after they've been certified, or is it or is it done virtually? No, it's this is all actual. This is all actual stuff. So Got it's it. done after they're certified. Um, they do it uh, while they're deployed. It, we we shouldn't tie them to a specific geographic area. So it, it we need to expand our, our you know our thinking beyond that, which is what we're doing. So uh, I don't want to tie it to a specific geographic area, it, but it is event based. It's once they're certified, then we can go full up. Because what we discovered, I'm a huge believer in the OFRP process, but the OFRP process is very structured. You can't have a true fleet free playing red because you've got specific training objectives that you have to achieve. And the OFRP is very mature in the amount of free play that it does allow to challenge that strike group commander. But uh, in the fleet problem, the strike group commander is given free reign, that this is your intellect applied against the challenge that you face, the Red Force, to achieve uh, the mission that you've been given. I, I wish, uh, unfortunately, because of the classified nature, I wish I could share with you, we did it with an ESG almost as an afterthought. We said, well, let's try it with the ESG. We gave it to a, a colonel and a captain. 
you know, the Mu Commander and the Arg Commander. I mean, it, it made me so proud to see the things that they did. And my commitment to the Commandant was, when I went to him and, and, and told him what my concept was, to, to do this with the ESG, because it is constraining. You know, they, I, I want the Blue Force to constrain themselves to reduce the likelihood of their being targeted. I don't want to say much, much more about that. Yes, sir. Well, I mean, um, it, it definitely... It was, it was phenomenal what, what they did. I mean, we learned so much from it. Well, Ward and I last week were at CSIS where uh, General Neller talked about, you know, challenges facing the Marine Corps and talked about, you know, the focus being back on amphibiosity and being at sea and being tied with the Navy. And uh, and and he mentioned it had been a long time that since the Marine Corps had talk, had had to think about fighting to the fight. Like how how does the how does an embarked Marine unit uh, contribute to the Navy units' uh, success at sea in, in, in able to, you know, to enable them to get to the fight. So what you're talking about definitely dovetails with that and would make a lot of sense to get the ESGs involved. Absolutely, and reduce the risk when, when they uh, uh, become uh, geographically constrained, you know, in, the conduction, in, the, in conducting either amphibious operations or uh, expeditionary operations. They, they are... But with the, what we're discovering, they are much more survivable against today's threat than they would have been otherwise by approaching the problem from a strategic perspective. It's back to we just can't throw technology at the problem. First of all, it takes too long for technology to get there. We need to be ready today. Uh, so my comment to General Neller when I talked to him about it was, I, I will make sure in, in this ESG executing this fleet problem that we do not diminish their readiness when they chop from uh, uh, pack fleet over to uh, uh, to fifth fleet, um, and and so this is it's complicated, uh, but we recognize there's real world const- readiness constraints that we need to consider uh, as well, and and I think we're doing it well, and I, I think if you ask General Neller about it, he would agree. So let's you mentioned real world readiness constraints. Right now we have uh, a CR in place and. A lot of discussion here around D.C. Uh, about what's going to happen on February 8th. All the service chiefs have, have been on the record saying that uh, operating under CR is, uh, let's be polite and say it's a suboptimum situation. Um, so how, how are you feeling this um, against the real-world commitments that, that are very much uh, focused on PAC fleet? Well, it, it, um, it can't be overstated. Uh, the challenges of the uh, CR, uh, and, and, I, and I, I'm grateful uh, for the unanimity uh, of approach of all the service chiefs. And in my case, in particular, uh, the commandant and uh, and CNO. That the challenge that we it resonates with the defense committees. They you know they get. I mean, I, I couldn't be happier with the uh, with the leadership. Uh, of the defense committees as well, they've been strong proponents. You know, e- even with the collisions that we've had with uh, with McCain and Fitzgerald and the grounding of uh, Antietam, uh, the, the collision with with uh, the Lake Champlain experience. From from a defense committee perspective, they've been very clear in connecting the the uh, uh, challenging effects that are created based on the CR. The challenge that, that we have is that people don't understand without the budget authority that we get with a budget, I can, I can only spend the money that I have. I can see problems 
three months from now, four months from now, five months from now. I don't have the funding authority that I would have if I had a full budget to, to address those problems now. So we're, I had to cancel three ship avails because industry is saying, hey, if, if you can't, and, and I, I'm not, no criticism of industry, this is just the reality. If you don't have uh, money in your checkbook, uh, why, you know, why would I write a contract with you? Unless I knew that you know, I could predict what, what the government would do. And, you know, we ended up in a government shutdown to the point that they make. They can't take risk with their shareholders um, when their, their customer's uh, pocketbook is, uh, you know, is, is empty or, or isn't, doesn't have the flexibility that it would have if it, it had a budget. This is, this is, so here's my talking point on the CR. I'm less concerned about losing those, those three ship avails. What I'm concerned about is my relief and maybe even my relief's relief that will be uh, having to manage the negative implications of the CRs that have already occurred three and four years from now. So the, the challenge that we have with maintenance, it's what we're, li- we're living now with the CR decisions that were made three years ago. You know, the, the recognition that uh, the challenges that we have with maintenance, the challenges that we have with manning, these are all representative of the lack of flexibility that we have had in the budget in, in order to optimize the maintenance of the fleet that we have. Uh, so it's not just the near-term impacts. You know, that's actually easier to, to manage because I can tell you exactly what I can and can't do. Uh, what is more difficult is to say there's going to be um, – these problems are going to extend out three or four years. I just can't tell you what they are, and I can't tell you what the magnitude of, of it is. That's going to be a path of discovery going forward. So you, you mentioned McCain and Fitzgerald – um, we had a uh, interesting article in last month's magazine written by Captain Kevin Iyer, retired, who's pretty much been a, a yeoman around, uh, you know, the sort of surface warriors uh, uh, takeaway on whether <coughs> baby swas is the right thing or, you know, how this happened. But he, he did this um, article last month called How It Happened, and he took it way back to the pre-9-11 Rumsfeld SecDef era. And, and, you know, you remember, and people forget that, uh, you know, after 9-11, when it was all about Halliburton and profiteering and all, it seems like there was a lot of money thrown at the problem. But Secretary Rumsfeld pre-9-11 was all about leaning out the force. Um, and so Kevin Harris points out in those days, uh, CNO Clark, uh, you know, basically gave either a direct or tacit command to uh, various folks to... Uh, figure out how we could do the same or more with less manpower. And this is where, uh, like you mentioned, availabilities went away uh, as a cost-saving measure. Inspection cycles, you you figured out if you had seven guys on the bridge, if you could do it with five. And so that that sort of atmosphere hits uh, or or gets collided with 9-11, and then we just go to war. Now, fast forward, because you mentioned sequester. Right, so we've been dealing with CRs, but we've also been dealing with this burden of sequestration. So the the confluence of all of those things, if you take a fifteen year view, seventeen year view, um, explains where, as you say, it, it, it's where you are now. Um, and I know that everybody wants to get caught up in the uh, the pointing of fingers, and certainly with seventeen shipmates uh, killed in peacetime sailing, that's that's something that that needs to be remedied and intended to and. And people uh, need to take accountability for, for 
whatever. Um, but the bigger issue is somewhat unresolved in terms of how many ready assets we have to do the nation's bidding. And so last night, uh, you know, President Trump was mentioning, he, he particularly pointed out North Korea. Um, you know, the punditry is going, it's saber rattling, saber rattling, and he's sort of pre uh, or setting the groundwork for uh, give uh, Kim Jong-un a bloody nose, if you will. Um, so not to get all Fox News or MSNBC on it, but uh, how are you feeling in your role with your ability against some of these things we're talking about um, to uh, to carry out uh, the orders of the commander in chief? Yeah, the, so here's a couple. I'm, I'm glad you brought up. Uh, there's if, if there was one solution, it'd be easy. You know, we 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 do it. Uh, and, and so the, the CR is tied, with sequestration is tied, with government shutdown. It creates an amalgam that uh, reduces our ability, my ability as the pack fleet uh, commander to uh, to maneuver. Um, I, I would, you know, I, I can't resist the opportunity to say, you know, one of the biggest issues I have is staff reductions, uh, and, and the fact that the power uh, of uh, a maritime headquarters. Uh, is not just the mock. It's, it's not just the, the Maritime Operations Center. It's the Maritime Headquarters side of it. In fact, if you look at what Nimitz did in World War II, when he applied the lessons from the fleet problem, he, he left it to Spruance and Halsey to, to, to develop and refine the operational piece. He focused on the MHQ side of things, the sustainment, uh, the logistics, uh, the, the building of the air bases, the building of, of the shipyards, uh, the forward bases, that's what's critically important. And, and you know, I've got a 20% staff reduction piece that I'm looking at, and, and because it's, it's sequestered over on the MHQ side, it's as if, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's sufficient. To, to the, to, this is what, how I would summarize uh, your, uh, your comment in my sp- uh, in my. Uh, uh, in my view, in my in my voice, uh, first of all, I applaud the work that the under and the VCNO are, are pursuing with the Oversight Council. Um, that's exactly what we need to do, and and that's acknowledgement on the CNO's part and the Secretary's part that we just can't take a checklist or punch list approach to solving the challenges that we face in the Navy. Um, at, at my concern is that that uh, I, I'm not familiar enough to say this with authority, but my concern is we took too much of a checklist, punchless approach to the Belial report. As I walk the waterfront, as I walk the deck plates, there's this sense out there that, that we never got to the required cultural change. Yeah, I just reread, it's at the secret level, I reread a, uh, a letter that, uh, a memo uh, that Admiral Copeman wrote uh, when he was uh, surf for that's very instructive. It's just as prescient uh, today, as it was when he wrote it, talking about the challenges that that he faced as uh, as Sir Four and and the necessity in, in resourcing uh, those challenges. Now we've got this great opportunity of, of the CR and the uh, SRR that helps uh, uh, quantify the challenges that that we face in the Navy. But we've got to we, we've got to have this oversight council that looks more broadly um, than just uh, the, the elements that are highlighted within the CR. 
we've got to get to the systemic why. You know, what is it that, that uh, enabled these problems? Otherwise, we're going to go, I can do the immediate solutions. You know, we've taken the disciplinary actions for, for those that had uh, less than optimum response from a leadership perspective, but, you know, we've got some real manning problems in the feet. That's not a revelation. I, I couldn't be happier with, with the effort that CMP has taken a turn on this, but as Admiral Davidson has pointed out, our manning is going to be less in 18 than it was in 17, and it's going to be less in 19 uh, than it was in 18. But we make a significant turn in 20 if we're able to execute the budget. In 20, we'll be back to the manning levels that we were in 17. We need to be careful to make sure that we don't claim that as success because the manning levels in 17 weren't sufficient as well. I mean, there's a reason that the submarine community is, is manned at 98% fit. You know, they, because they're truly a no-fail mission set. That's, that's what we need to take a look at as we move down this path, whatever it may be of, you know, we, there are different people throw out different numbers of whether it's, you know, a range around 350 or is it 355. We need to make sure that, that we buy the tail up front. What are the enablers for a fleet of that size? Do we have the schoolhouses? You know, the ready relevant uh, learning piece that CMP is working on with, uh, with Admiral Davidson I think is critically important. But we need to look at ourselves in the mirror and make sure that, that those investments will turn into true realities and savings. And then the last point I'll make on this is the tension, the healthy tension uh, between um, efficiency and effectiveness. You know, when you were describing the work that, that uh, CNO Clark was doing, too oftentimes, I think we defaulted to effectiveness without doing an assessment of uh, too, too often defaulted to efficiency without doing an assessment of what the impact was on effectiveness. That if we can save money, it's auto approval. If it's going to cost money, then it, you know deep dive on it. I'm saying I'm not saying we shouldn't do the deep dive on anything that costs us money. We should do a deep dive on anything that saves us money as well to make sure that we're getting a return on that savings on the effectiveness side as well. We've got, that's, that's our commitment to the nation. We have to be effective as a force. Now, I'll tell you right up front, if we're not effective in phase zero, we are not going to be effective in phase two. But we should use phase two as the metric to measure our effectiveness against. You know, a, fire, a major city fire department doesn't measure its effectiveness about its ability to fight a, a, a single dwelling residential fire. They've got to go fight the Twin Towers piece. That's where the San Francisco Fire Department, you know, any major city fire department measures their effectiveness against because that's the most, maybe the least likely, but it's the most critical challenge that they can face. That, that's where I think the CNO is driving us to in the Navy is to measure our efficiency against our effectiveness in, in a phase two war fight. And that's, that's why I'm focused on this C2 piece, to make sure at the operational level we're able to command and control it. We can't just discount it as a low probability of happening. We have to embrace it as this is our commitment to the nation. This is what they expect of us. Sir, that's a great segue to uh, our probably our last question that we have time for today. So uh, for the first time, in, in uh, as far as I can remember, we have a national security strategy and a new national defense strategy that specifically says uh, we're back to near-peer competition, long-term strategic competition against two named powers, China and Russia. 
uh, both cited as revisionist powers. Um, it also highlights the challenges that we're facing to uh, maintaining or keeping you know, what we've come used to in our careers as the U.S. military technology and uh, order of battle uh, edge, that we, we generally go into a fight thinking that we're going to overwhelm the enemy, and that's becoming a, a, an edge that is uh, narrowing. So you talked about fleet battle problems. Uh, you talked about the problems of the you know CR and budgetary things. What other kinds of things are you doing uh, in the Pacific Fleet? Uh, because you you face both uh, China, you face Russia, you also face North Korea, which is uh, plays a predominant role in the in the national security strategy and the defense strategy too. So um, I mean, my, my goodness, it's a it's a target rich environment to have a conversation on. Let, let me let me start off with a with a comment about the uh, national security strategy and the national uh, defense strategy. Uh, first of all. Huge head nods. Uh, I would say cheering at uh, at uh, with both those uh, documents. First thing I would say is they're both very well written. Uh, the second thing I would say is they represent uh, the world as I see it uh, today in the Pacific. Now I, I would not claim to be an expert on Russia. I just get a slice of of Russia uh, out here, but they, I certainly they've uh, uh, captured uh, the China piece. I, I, as as the PAC fleet commander, I have to view uh, the PLA as a as a peer competitor. I get it that if I was PACOM, that may be a different perspective when you bring the entire uh, joint force in. Um, so that's one thing that that I've instilled. That things that that I uh, it, within the the command structure here in the Pacific. The other thing is it goes back to a point that I made earlier about the importance of writing. So I started generating the SWIFT signals before, actually I started, the, the concepts uh, came from my experience, at, really as the J3, well, strike group commander, J3, 7th fleet commander. They distilled in, in my, uh, the time that I was uh, DNS, so that when I arrived here in the Pacific Fleet, it was a fairly quick turn on the staff, essentially an affirmation of uh, uh, the, the necessity to generate a dialogue, a meaningful dialogue, and that was the intent behind uh, the SWIFT signal. So that's one thing that we've done. I knew where I wanted to go with the fighting instructions. Very impressed with uh, with the work that Admiral Mustin did in, in writing the, the uh, fighting instructions. Interesting, a friend of mine was CEO of the USS Mustin and had a relationship with the Mustin family and mentioned that you know I was on this path to write the fighting instructions. And one of his comments back was from Admiral Mustin, uh, God rest his soul, uh, had had made a comment to this CO that it was actually Arlie Burke that edited every word. Arlie Burke was CNO when Mustin was Second Fleet and wrote those, which is another uh, um, jolt of energy I got for getting after the task of writing the uh, uh, the fighting instructions. So it's it's important to to write. There's some things that you can do through a, a venue such as proceedings, but you have to write at the secret level and higher as well um, so that you can talk openly in your writing about the, uh, about the challenges uh, that you face. To, to, to the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, what it describes is the here and now very well. I, I, I see a, a, almost complete overlap between the, the vision of the challenges that we face today uh, from, from the description in both those, uh, those documents and the challenges as I see them. My challenge is 
how do I get after those challenges with a force that I have? My next uh, obligation is to communicate uh, up to uh, uh, Admiral Davidson and, and the CNO. These are my recommendations of how that force needs to change through the investments made through the POM process. The bigger challenge is uh, of the CNO who has to look you know, beyond the, uh, the now into the near and the future and be predictive about where those threats are going and make the, uh, the appropriate investments uh, to, uh, uh, to meet, those, meet those challenges as they, uh, as they manifest themselves. So I, one critique I have of the here, the here and now folks is that we tend to lament too much what we don't have. We need to focus on what we do have and how do we optimally apply it. Uh, that, that's what I've been uh, trying to do in my tenure here and, and, and why I've, I've been focused on uh, the three articles, uh, one uh, just published, as you mentioned, and, and what I hope are two more articles that will follow in uh, close order. Well, we're liking your chances uh, since we have the deputy editor here in the room with us. Um, so, Admiral, thanks for the time today. And, uh, again, the article is called Mastering the Art of Command and Control in this month's proceedings. Sir, we look forward to seeing you out at West next Tuesday. You're the keynote speaker. Um, so we'll look forward to seeing you out there. And uh, we also need to get you one of our new T-shirts. They're super cool. Has Admiral Warden on the front. And uh, our new tagline is victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute on the back. So we'll have to make sure you get, uh, what are you, an XL probably, I'm thinking? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so we'll, we got a T-shirt with your name on it. Um, so uh, we look forward to seeing you out there for West. Uh, always a good time. Uh, invite the uh, the viewers and the listeners. If they're in this greater San Diego area next Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, please stop by the convention center. Active, active duty is free, as always. And uh Great keynotes like Admiral Swift and, and others uh, and great panels and, and so forth. So, sir, we very much look forward to seeing you out there. Thanks for the time uh, today. Great, great thoughts, and uh, thanks for bringing us up to speed. Thanks for writing for proceeding, sir. Yeah, thanks very much. And if I could tag really quickly on what you just said uh, to the listeners and readers out there, uh, strongly encourage them uh, to come to San Diego. Particularly, I've got a, a keynote opportunity at lunch, as you mentioned. My comments are going to be very short. What I want to get to is the questions, uh, such as the questions that you've raised. Bring your questions to that forum. I'm interested in finding out what's on uh, your readers' and your listeners' minds. Thanks for this opportunity. Yes, sir. So it's safe travels uh, from Hawaii to San Diego, and we'll see you very soon. We'll see you next week. Thank okay. you again. Yes, sir. Take care. All right. Very cool conversation with Admiral Swift. Uh, we thank him for taking the time. As we've uh, said, we uh, entreat the uh, the audience to uh, check out his article in this month's proceedings and look for his articles in the future. future. It's a three-part series, as he mentioned. Um, so fantastic. So we'll, again, look forward to seeing those in the Southern California area in person next week. We're going to be interviewing Admiral Moore out there. Um, we're taking the podcast on the road, so we'll have uh, NAVC uh, with us on on the site in San Diego uh, for our podcast next week. Uh, so that's very exciting. And uh, thank you for uh, your patronage of both the Facebook live feed and the podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, any other podcast aggregator. 
share us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, the impact of the Proceedings Podcast is growing exponentially week in and week out. Uh, give us your ideas and who you would like to see as a guest. Um, we'll look to highlight authors of Proceedings primarily, but we also would like to have uh, other newsmakers and people of, uh, of interest to the uh, Naval Institute audience. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, as always, we'll see you next Wednesday live from San Diego. And don't forget, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Talk to you soon.